It can sometimes be hard to find fresh, engaging, and practical ways to learn about the Catholic faith that feel relevant to your daily life. That's why Ave Maria Press launched its Ave Explores initiative to help nourish your faith in ways that are meaningful to you. Check out the Ave Explores podcast hosted by Katie Prejean McGrady and make sure to subscribe. You can also sign up for all of the free content at AveMariaPress.com or by following Ave Maria Press on social media. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. What if your decisions about how to use technology were based on your fundamental beliefs about what it means to be a human being and what human flourishing is? Now, what if your children also made their decisions about technology in that way? I know that sounds like a doubly tall task, like a fantastic sort of idealism. But what if I told you that this is not only doable, but utterly practical and liberating? And I know just the book that can help you think about the right use of technology and help your kids to do so too. My guest today is the author of that book, She is Amy Crouch, who wrote My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. In fact, Amy wrote this book when she was 19. I have read more books about technology than I would like to admit, and I can tell you that this book is among the very, very best. Part of what makes it so spectacular is that Amy gives us a practical vision of how she and her family made their decisions about technology as a community and developed specific, intentional practices to cultivate their most cherished values while avoiding potential vices. And the book is just so readable, even as it is utterly enlightening. Amy joins me today to talk not just about her book, but about the vision of the good life that underlies her tech-wise life, and how we can all make very small and practical decisions to be more fully and genuinely human. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm so glad you're here. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Tech-wise. Your father, Andy, popularized that term when he published his book, The TechWise Family, which is your family, The TechWise Family. <laughs> that book was published in 2017. Your book, My TechWise Life, provides us with what I found to be a really honest and probing account of this approach to technology from your perspective. At that point, a late teenager, now an early 20-something in college. Before we get into anything else, I'd really love for you to help us understand what TechWise means. How would you describe it, Amy? Absolutely. Well, growing up in the quote unquote tech wise family, I have to say that it's not something, not really something we defined Mm. until my brother and I were at least teenagers. It was so much a part kind of integrated with the rest of our family culture and what it meant to be our family that we almost, I feel like we figured out that we had created this idea of tech wise as we went along. 
Um, but what I would say is living tech wise didn't mean that we sort of completely got rid of technology in our lives. It didn't mean that we lived in kind of an Amish or quote unquote, almost Amish lifestyle, <laughs> right? But it did mean that making wise, intentional decisions about how we would use technology was just a central part of our family commitments and what it meant for us to be a family who, who loved each other. And so it meant talking at mealtimes about when it would make sense for my brother and me to get a phone, discussing why, or my parents sort of explaining to us why they had decided not to have a TV in our house until I was, I think, 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. And overall, it was a lot of little choices that were guided by this belief that Technology can be really helpful if it is a tool, if it helps us do what we are called to do, but it can very easily get in the way of a life worth living. And so we really tried to make decisions that centered relationship and community and kind of use technology as a tool for all of the good things that we wanted to do but really strongly resisted the kind of pull of devices into every corner of our lives. Mm. Did you have a sense growing up of something distinctive about the culture of your family that you all were trying to develop as compared to or contrasted with some of the other families that you might have seen the way in which technology was perhaps more present, prevalent in their homes and maybe affected family dynamics? Did you have a sense of that? Oh, definitely. I mean, even on the sort of simplest level, when I went over to other kids' houses when I was, you know, in elementary school or so, you know, we sometimes we would play outside, but mm -hmm. it would be very common to whatever, to have everyone on an iPad or playing video games or staring at phones. And when people came over to our house, <laughs> that was not what happened. We had all kinds of board games. We had so much for sort of playing outside and we're lucky to have a, a beautiful backyard. I, we actually, I remember when I was little, we like put on plays, we like wrote little plays and got <laughs> costumed. And so even when I was very young, I definitely noticed that we just had a different set of options than, mm. than other families, I would say that the ideas of what you did when you were bored, what you did when you wanted to make people feel welcome. In our family, those were always, maybe I won't say always, but were intended to be non-device-centered. Right. I love that phrase you just used, a different set of options. So could you maybe give us a sense of whether it's your family living room or maybe if you want to take us in, I don't know if, you know, your dorm room or, you know, the spaces <laughs> that you yourself now are responsible for curating intentionally what are yeah. the sets of options in some of these spaces? How are they designed or set up? Yeah, this was really important to mom and dad. And I, you know, obviously when my brother and I were very little, we didn't have much say over it. But um, <laughs> it's been something I've been thinking about is how we set up the, our living spaces in order to make a tech-wise life easier in some ways. So when when you walk into our house, especially when my brother and I were little, you would immediately see two things. You would see our like musical section of the living room and then our arts and crafts section. Mm. So we have a piano and a bunch of instruments. My brother and I both played stringed instruments, but we also had a guitar. And then we had this 
like old, very, very sturdy little craft table, we called it, with all sorts of arts and crafts supplies. We had a front hall closet full of, you know, frisbees, playing catch, that kind of thing. And of course, we also had a cabinet of board games. And so just walking into our house, you very much saw all of these options for embodied and sort of, and yeah, non-device-based fun and living. This is a really interesting principle that I think maybe many of us don't think about so much that space, the way in which we arrange and organize space, inclines us towards certain kinds of activities or ways of engagement Mm -hmm. and disinclines us from other ones just because of, like you're saying, the options that are available. So you're now at the point where you're starting to be responsible for your own space. Like you were saying, as a kid, you weren't the one who was charged with setting up your living room. It was your parents. What kind of decisions do you find yourself making now when it's starting to become your space? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I'm moving into an apartment with my friends this coming year. And so I've already been thinking ahead about what that might look like. And you'll be a senior this year, right? I'll be a senior. That's right. right. But and so, so far, it's really just been me in my own little room and figuring out what I want that space to look like. I think, well, there are a couple of things. First of all, I always try to keep my phone at least out of my room if possible and at least somehow kind of de-centered if mm-hmm. that makes sense somewhere mm-hmm. out of the way so while while I was living in a dorm I I would just keep it like in a drawer and when whenever I'm in a house I'll leave it downstairs out of my room and then I also just sort of on the opposite end I'm trying to make my room a spot where it's easy to see all of the kinds of embodied activities that I like to do. So I have my bookshelf with all kinds of books. I've put up some uh, poems and and Bible verses on my walls. I And so I've put up decorations so that when I look around, I'm sort of reminded of what's important to me mm-hmm. and what I care about. And I really... Yeah, just try try to make those kind of embodied and attention-requiring options always present and always easy to find. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Amy Crouch, author of My Tech-Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. The book is published by Baker Books. Let's turn a little bit more towards the book itself. So one of the really distinctive features that I think people will find as soon as they pick it up is that each of the chapters you have written, which are incredibly insightful, by the way, each of the chapters that you've written has as a response a letter from your dad who has now read the chapter and written a letter back to you on each one of these chapters. How do you think that kind of dynamic of you speaking and then your dad kind of taking this in and giving you a little something back, how was that important to what you were developing there or what the readers like me and others encounter when they come upon the book? Well, I think it models what is absolutely necessary to a quote unquote tech wise life, Mm. which is decisions about technology and devices always happen in community because they always affect community, right? Your decisions about how you're going to use technology are going to impact the people around you so much. And so I really see that structure in the book as a way to show imperfectly, but I hope well, what it was like to grow up talking about these choices and making them as a family 
deciding to be intentional about technology, not as a kind of top down, you know, parents providing the rules, Mm -hmm. but as this ongoing commitment that our family wanted to make. And I think in particular, I... I'm really grateful that you get to see both the ways that we agree and the ways that we disagree. (laughs) And I think and I hope what you see in the book is that we may not always have the same opinions about sort of details of specifically whatever. When should a kid get a smartphone? How, you know, should you be able to whatever? But we have this governing set of commitments to living an embodied and kind of person-centered life. And that leads to all of the smaller scale decisions that we made. That seems to pick up on something that in in the series of letters your dad started to comment on in response to your chapters. I think maybe it was his second, by the second or third letter, he said, you know, Amy, I'm starting to think, though this book is about technology, it's not really about technology primarily, right? There's something deeper going on here. You're building something more, maybe even more foundational. These are my Mm -hmm. words now, not his, but I wonder if what you were just saying about these governing set of commitments might tap into that. What what do you do you think that's right, that there's something deeper involved in the book than just being primarily about technology? And if so, what might you think that is? Well, absolutely. And I I mean, the thing is. I don't think that the problems of technology are new. Mm -hmm. I think that technology is uh, kind of touching on very, very old problems that are just fundamental to what it is to be a person. I mean, it's true that we, it's only very recently that like young girls have started comparing themselves to pictures of other people on social media, but people have been insecure and seeking for validation since the beginning of, of creation. Right. We certainly have more distraction at our fingertips than ever before, but we have always always struggled to to focus, to uh, kind of sharpen our minds and to pay attention for meaningful amounts of time. And so I really think that this book is only sort of superficially about technology or mm, I, I think that everything I talk about in the book is really about living a wise life, mm-hmm. not even a tech wise life, but a wise life and cultivating the skill of discernment. And I kind of specifically discuss how a person seeking wisdom can make these choices around technology. But I ultimately think that if we try to live a healthy life with technology, we'll find that we need ancient virtues to react to this very seemingly modern phenomenon. That describes really well, I think, what I what I wouldn't have been able to put so eloquently into, eloquently into words, but my impression from the book is precisely what you just talked about there, the appeal to ancient virtues. Um, I love what you just said, the skill of discernment, living wise, not just tech wise. I think, you know, I wrote a, a note at the, the back of the book as I was reading it, and I think I said, you know, I feel like this book is about the development of character. This is something Mm. I myself think a lot about. But I mean, just reading over the titles of the chapters, I'm going to give people a little little moment to listen to the titles of the chapters. I won't read them all, but they all start, we don't have to. And they continue, we don't have to compare ourselves, be distracted, be disconnected, live with secrets, 
edit our lives, avoid boredom, be exhausted. And then the last chapter is we can live in hope. And I thought that like each of those was kind of like the opening to a deeper kind of engagement, like a reconsideration of how to spend our time, what virtues to acquire and to strengthen. And Amy, I really felt like very much in line with what you were just saying, it's a kind of invitation, provocation maybe to reconsider what it means to be a human person and to develop more fully as a human person. Does that, I mean, as, so here's my reader response. Does that resonate with you? Does this sound like what was, I know there's the author intention and you never quite know what the author intention (laughs) is, even as the author, but does that resonate with your own understanding of what you were doing? No, it does. I'm so glad you picked up on that because I think what I was trying to combat with this book is actually that technology has a distinct vision about what it means to be a human Mm. being. Although, I mean, technology being, I'll say sort of specifically, maybe the devices of Silicon Valley, um, but technology has a certain vision of what humans are and what we need, whether that's we need to be efficient. We just need to be able to communicate with less effort and with fewer pixels. Or if it's kind of conversely, humans are bored. We just need things to fill up our time. We need to escape the kind of fundamental boredom of being a person. And so I actually think that this book is about saying, no, the assumptions of technology, I deeply believe are not true. Hmm. And if we are living with kind of our lives saturated by these assumptions, I here's, maybe here's a good way to put it. I don't think that I can sort of mindlessly use my phone all day long without picking up and absorbing all of the assumptions about being human that the designers of my phone made. Right. I don't think that we can just sort of I don't think we can be unaffected by technology. And I think that the result of sort of spending so much time with it is that we start to pick up on this very wrong and kind of discordant vision of what it is to be a person. And I think there is a much better way. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Amy Crouch, author of My Tech Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. If it's okay with you, let's pick up on just a couple of these chapters and the topics of them. I'd love sure. to, to do a little bit of a deeper dive. So one of the chapters that I was really intrigued by is the one you titled, We Don't Have to Live with Secrets, which is really sort of intriguing on its own. But in that chapter, you illuminate for us what I think you eventually dubbed the privacy paradox. And I'll just quote mm-hmm. a line from there to give people a sense of what you're talking about. You said, this is the weird paradox of technology. While it is easy to hide parts of our lives from people close to us, it's harder to keep them safe from strangers. So what you're sort of illuminating in this chapter is that we certainly need privacy, and we know this, Mm -hmm. especially in the digital world. Privacy is utterly important in security and being able to keep our sensitive information from (laughs) certain actors that would do harm to us. But too much privacy makes us secretive and probably duplicitous in regards to those who are closest to us. So can you bring us into how you think about this paradox and the, I don't know, it felt like there's a sort of razor's edge here that we're trying to yes. develop, especially regards in regards to technology and the need, but also the danger of privacy. I think, I think the problem of privacy, especially online on the internet, 
is that what it actually offers us is anonymity. And I think that anonymity is a very different thing than privacy, or if not a different thing than the sort of, you know, kind of uh, like evil twin of it, if that sounds sort of silly. But um, what the internet especially offers us is the opportunity to be without a name, to browse, to read, to, to leave comments, to watch, whatever, without our names and our faces being attached to something. You can live life on the internet completely detached from your personal self from from the community that you live in. And this can look like so many things, right? It can look like sort of online bullying. It can look like using pornography in all of the sort of secretive ways you can. Um, it can simply look like, you know, not sort of spending time consuming content without mm -hmm. your own likeness and name being attached to that. But the problem is I don't think that anonymity is the right way to gain privacy because I think that real privacy should be based on trust. I, you know, the reason I, I'm, I'm back in my childhood home and I'm alone in my house right now and my parents have both gone to work and that is somehow, they, there is a foundation of trust in this privacy right now, right? They both have a certain amount of trust that I'm not going to like burn the house down. But right, <laughs> they also like in seeing me grow up have felt that I can be trusted to be alone, to be left ungoverned for very long periods of time, right? Because that's what parenting is. And so I think that privacy should be a natural outflowing of relationships of trust rather than anonymity, which is really just putting on a shield in which nobody can know you. Mm -hmm. That's really well put. I really love that. So, I mean, you're at home and in other words, like the house isn't wired with cameras everywhere to make sure. That, <laughs> no, that it's you're... not a surveillance state. <laughs> so what are some of the best strategies that you've identified or the, the sort of practices for minimizing the bad kind of privacy while safeguarding a healthy kind of privacy or a necessary kind of privacy? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly difficult, but I think, mm, well, I think that openness as a family about the legitimate dangers of technology, especially for kids, can really make a big difference. So we had, I actually don't know if we still do, but we definitely, when I was younger, we had a home filter on our internet. Mm -hmm. And we... That was that wasn't just something that my parents, you know, installed and then let us figure out for ourselves. No, they talked to us. They in, you know, age appropriate terms explained to us the reasons that they had put a filter on our internet, you know, the ways that kind of unfettered unfettered access to the online world can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so, I would say we put up those kinds of guard walls. Mm, but 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 we're sort of honest about what yeah. they were and why. There's dialogue about it to go back to what you were saying much earlier, right? That dialogue is yes. a key part of all of this, right? Exactly. And I also think that one of the reason, one of the things that can lead, especially to, you know, kids and teenagers to keep secrets from their family is often a feeling that mom and dad just can't understand. Mm. Like, especially when it comes to stuff online or on social media, this feeling of like, they just don't get it. They right. couldn't understand what's like. And so I would actually say it's almost important to like 
before you can even imagine any kinds of, of problems with the internet, to always be talking about life online, to be even the sort of simple questions of like what being curious about how your kids use, if you're a parent, use social media, about what kind of social life especially is kind of pressuring people into, what is kind of expected in a peer group. I think that just kind of cultivating an understanding of what the online world is like for young people can make it so much easier for kids to be like, oh, I have somebody who understands and who will will really be able to get it when I explain these problems. So those are, those are two things. Yeah, I love that. And earlier, I, I mean, I just to pick up on this point, you said you don't even know if they still have the filter, but they had it. That actually sort of proves the point, right? Like the filter no longer, even if it's yeah, not there, yeah. needs to be there, right? It's just sort of been ingrained. Like you have, to go back to what you were saying earlier, like as parents, your parents have entrusted you with the ability to govern yourself. You have through your relationship of trust have shown that. And so there doesn't need to be a filter in a home anymore because you are the filter, right? Yeah. So this kind of brings us to another aspect of the book that I really loved, which is that you close each chapter prior to the response from your dad. You close each chapter with this portion of what to do next. And I thought this was, for me, I thought it was like really important and helpful in that this book, though you know, as people can hear from what you're talking about, there's a great deal of like theory and thinking that's going on, (laughs) but it's all, it's all deeply practical. This Mm -hmm. is about the practical aspects of how to live a well-ordered life. So talk to us a little bit about how you understand the importance of that, what to do next portion and what you're trying to offer to people there. I, you can't live a wise life unmoored from all of the little details of life, right? Right. And so I think that living tech-wise really comes down to very small, very concrete decisions. And honestly, I feel like it makes the most sense to list some of them so that you can see what that's like keeping devices out of your bedroom. So going to sleep and waking up without seeing a screen right next to you, <laughs> you can get an alarm clock. Yeah. Setting all devices aside when you're with other people, except in sort of specialized cases, like when I'm going to study with somebody or whatever. But whenever you are eating a meal with someone, mm-hmm. having a conversation, going on a walk, keeping devices out of the picture. As we kind of talked about earlier, placing, sort of shaping the space of your home so that devices are not present. I, I think I mentioned that our we do now have a TV, but it is in our basement. And so if you were to walk into our first floor, you wouldn't see it anywhere. So, so keeping devices kind of at the, maybe at the margins of mm-hmm. your home rather than right in the middle. And I would also say more generally, just thinking about how to live an embodied life. Some of us, right, have very physical work in our lives, whether that ranges from plumbing to taking care of toddlers. But a lot of us, especially in the aftermath of this year, we're just spending all all of our work and all of our leisure time just looking at screens. And so I I would say there's, there's an element of just adding physical embodied actions back into your life. Mm -hmm. Think about whether, you know, working in a garden, journaling on a a physical, you know, journal with a a pen, spending time cooking. I I think it can make a huge difference to just add small, small, small actions back into your life that remind you that you're a three-dimensional human. 
I've been talking with Amy Crouch, the author of My Tech Wise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. You can find her book. It's published by Baker Books. Amy, thank you so, so very much for spending the time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The Golden Rule. When you schedule a financial checkup with Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our people will be helpful and honest and kind. They will look for ways to save you money, and when your checkup is complete, they will send $150 to Redeemer Radio. For more info, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.